Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 112, The Fall of the Samurai, part 5. Before we get started this week, I just want to point out a pair of quick corrections from listener Ian Rapley. Ian was kind enough to remind me that Commodore Perry, in fact, did not sail through the Straits of Magellan, but took the long way around from Virginia to Japan, past the Cape of Good Hope, and then up through India and the Straits of Malacca. Also, the interpreter he hired in Hong Kong actually did speak some Japanese, but the negotiations switched to Dutch because both sides found it easier to use. Which makes sense, since Japanese has a lot of honorifics, gradations of ambiguity, which could be serious pitfalls if you aren't used to using them in highly complex and formal gunpoint negotiations. So, thank you, Ian, for pointing those out. When we left things off last week, the lords of Japan were divided into roughly two camps over what exactly should be done regarding pressure from the West. Those who had submitted to the Tokugawa family before their final victory in 1600 wanted to strengthen the power of the central Tokugawa government to deal with the West and make concessions to buy time for self-strengthening. The outer Tozama lords, as well as branches of the Tokugawa family itself, wanted to decentralize the government and devolve more power to the regional lords in order to enable more locally driven policies of self-strengthening. As we discussed, this whole split has more to do with the wealth of individual fiefdoms than anything else. The domains of the Fudai Daimyo tended to be on the smaller side, and they lacked the wealth to try and independently strengthen their own militaries. They wanted to rely on the central government to help them do it. The Tozama lords, meanwhile, tended to have much larger domains and thus the wealth to independently remake their own militaries, and resented the potential of the central Tokugawa government to interfere. This is a very important point to emphasize because very often, in oversimplified histories of the Meiji Restoration, the complexities of what actually happened get straightened out into a pretty straightforward chain. Americans show up, country splits into two camps, one that is pro-Westernization, one that opposes it, the two fight it out, pro-Westernization camp wins, and remakes Japan as a Western state. This explanation is short, simple, and has the added virtue of being easily contrastable with the cases of Korea and China, where one can easily argue that the same thing happened, but that in those cases the anti-Westernization faction won. Unfortunately for those of you who like your explanation is short and simple, it's also completely wrong. What's going on here isn't so much a fight over whether or not Japan needs Western technology. All of these lords were reading the news from China. They knew the details of what had happened during the Opium Wars. They knew that if the great and mighty empire of the Qing Dynasty was losing wars to the Western powers, then little Japan was really in trouble. The split at this point was really over two things. How much time was necessary to get ready to fight the West, and to what extent was it now necessary to break down the traditional rules of the feudal system and give more or less power to the Tokugawa government. Nobody is really saying at this point, we don't need Western weapons. At most, some of the wealthier domains that want to strike sooner are saying we don't need that many of them because our other advantages outweigh them. That is, to be sure, an unrealistic position, but it's not one that's fundamentally opposed to all Western technology. 
On the other end, nobody is seriously talking at this point about overturning feudalism and turning Japan into a Western nation-state. Instead, the argument is about how best to defend the order of things as they have been for centuries. So now that we're clear on that, I want to stop the progress of the narrative for this episode and take some time to look at two men whose ideas really began to come to the forefront around this time. I think their positions do a lot to clarify what the terms of the debate going on actually are, and many of their students are going to play a pretty key role in things to come. The first man is Sakuma Shozan, a vassal of the Sonata family from modern Shinano in central Honshu. Sakuma was born in 1811 and thus grew up with the storm clouds of the foreign crisis constantly around him. For the first 33 years of his life, however, Sakuma absorbed himself not with the studies of the West, but with studies of the Chinese classics. He proved to be a Confucian scholar of considerable skill, and had he been born a hundred years earlier, like as not, he would have passed his days in an academy somewhere, debating the finer points of the Mencius and the Book of Rites with his students. However, that was not going to be his fate. You see, when in 1841 news of the end of the First Opium War reached Japan, Sakuma was absolutely devastated. Here was China, home of the greatest intellectuals and scholars in history, and for most of Japan's history the most powerful nation on earth, laid low by a bunch of barbarians from across the seas. The Opium War caused Sakuma to develop a new and consuming passion. He had to understand how the West had done it. How had they humbled the great Chinese empire? Luckily enough, Sakuma was almost immediately given a chance to pursue his passion. His lord, Tanada Yukitsura, was a high-ranking Fudai Daimyo, one of the lords trusted by the Tokugawa, and in 1841, Tanada Yukitsura was appointed to the Roju, the Council of Elders, tasked with doing much of the actual work of government. Yukitsura was given the further mandate of trying to upgrade Japan's coastal defenses. As one of Yukitsura's most trusted subordinates, Sakuma Shozan, was retasked to work as a rangaksha, a Japanese term which literally translates to a scholar of Dutch learning. Remember, at this point, only the Dutch among all Western nations were allowed to trade with Japan, so, from the Japanese perspective in the 1840s, all Western knowledge came from the Dutch. All of it was Dutch learning. This actually led to some pretty depressed scholars after the arrival of Commodore Perry. Most of them assumed that since all of this Western learning was coming in from the Dutch, Holland must be incredibly powerful and Dutch a widely spoken language. They were all deeply upset to discover that, in fact, English and French were the main languages of international commerce and politics. Sakuma became a voracious consumer and translator of Japanese texts. One of his first Dutch books was an encyclopedia from which he learned how to make glass, thermometers, telescopes, even a basic camera. His original charge had been to study Western military technology, especially coastal fortifications that could be used to drive off predatory Western fleets. However, Sakuma quickly went beyond that simple mandate. He became convinced that the key to Western power lay not in their guns, but in the scientific reasoning that enabled Western nations to make their advanced weaponry in the first place. This was the foundation for his whole intellectual approach to the world, 
which is usually referred to by an abbreviated shorthand, Eastern Ethics, Western Science. In other words, Sakuma believed that Japan should not give up its traditional Confucian-based social order, but it should also not let blind anti-foreignism prevent it from embracing the technological achievements of the West. Sakuma's ideas were summed up in an eight-point program he'd submitted to his lord, Sanada Yukitsura, for how to deal with the challenges of the West. I won't give you the entire program, instead I'm just going to boil it down to three essential types of proposal. First, Japan needs a modern navy and modern coastal defenses. Second, the bureaucratic hierarchy needs to be completely reworked to allow for merit selection rather than selection by birth. Third, there needs to be a serious campaign in the provinces to promote virtuous behavior across the nation, primarily by building schools so that, quote, even the most stupid men and women may understand loyalty, piety, and chastity. That first bit about the strong navy is all Western science, but the other two are very much still Eastern ethics. The whole idea of appointing men based on talent rather than birth is at the heart of Confucian meritocracy, and Sakuma's whole idea of national education is premised not on teaching facts or critical thinking, but on propagandizing Confucian values. Indeed, Sakuma insisted that science and Confucianism were deeply compatible. He pointed to a whole long list of Confucian scholars who promoted the idea of learning through investigation in a way remarkably similar to the scientific method that is to say, rigorous observation and experimentation. I don't want to get too much into the weeds of the different types of Confucianism, but that certainly is an accurate reading of at least some brands of Confucian ideology. Unfortunately, Sakuma's proposals proved deeply unpopular with the Tokugawa government, mostly because they would have involved ceding a lot of initiative to the local level. Sanada Yukitsura was eventually forced to leave the Roju Council, and Sakuma Shozan became a full-time scholar of Western learning. In his capacity as a scholar, he took on two young students who are well worth talking about in their own right. The first was an ambitious young scholar from Choshu Domain named Yoshida Shoin. Yoshida was the adopted son of a samurai family in Choshu Domain, who was all of 23 years old when Perry arrived in Japan. His family was specifically charged with serving as hereditary instructors for the Domain School. Specifically, Yoshida taught the works of a Confucian scholar and strategist named Yamaga Soko. These teachings stressed the importance of Confucian ideology and the key social role of the samurai class in society. Samurai were supposed to embody the best parts of the Confucian tradition in order to inspire those around them to virtue. So, in other words, Yoshida was fairly conservative in his outlook, with an attitude that dovetailed nicely with the whole idea of Eastern ethics and Western science. Sakuma's second student of note was a man named Katsu Kaishu. I should say one of his names is Katsu Kaishu, because like most Japanese people of the period, he had several names he went through, though I'm not going to give you all of them. Kaishu was a pen name, and it's the one he's best known by. I'm going to use it exclusively, both because it's his best-known name, and because you can translate it literally as something like Sea Vessel, which should give you some idea of where Katsukaishu's passion lay. 
Kaishu was the son of a family of Hatamoto, minor samurai who were direct vassals of the Tokugawa shogun rather than being lords in their own right. Kaishu's father, Katsukokichi, is a very interesting man. Kokichi was an alcoholic and a gambler who, among other things, worked as a bouncer in a gambling house to help pay for his lifestyle of frivolity and indulgence. Eventually, Kokichi gave up his headship of the Kaishu family to his 15-year-old son, convinced that the equivalent of a high school sophomore could do a better job than he could. Kokichi then proceeded to die of complications from what was probably cirrhosis of the liver in 1850. We'll probably do a small episode on him at some point, because before his death in 1850, Kokichi wrote a short autobiography that provides a very fascinating account of just what it's like to be the black sheep of a samurai family. Anyway, Katsukaishu took over leadership of the Kaishu family at 15 and promptly proved to be everything his father was not. Hardworking, diligent, and driven. So much so that Meiji-era intellectual Fukuzawa Yukichi, upon meeting him, described Kaishu as just outright annoying. He really turned the fortunes of the family around, and was even given special dispensation to go study with Sakuma, eventually becoming a translator for the central Tokugawa government and one of their best experts on naval affairs in particular. We'll have more to say about Katsukaishu in future episodes, for now, I want to focus more on the pair of Sakuma Shozan and Yoshida Shoin. Now, Sakuma and Yoshida ended up being split up forcibly in 1854 as the result of an absolutely crazy plan. Sakuma encouraged his young student, Yoshida, to try and sneak aboard the American ships docked in Edo Bay and sail away for the U.S. Sakuma's thinking appears to have been that there's only so much to be learned from books, so a trusted student had to be sent abroad to learn about the West firsthand. However, the Americans were not impressed when this bedraggled and soaked samurai furtively rode up and asked for a lift back to San Francisco. Figuring that it was not worth aggravating the Japanese just to help some kid hitch a lift, Commodore Perry turned him back over to the Tokugawa. Now, what Sakuma and Yoshida had tried to do was technically a violation of the isolation laws, which not only prohibited Westerners from coming to Japan, but prohibited Japanese people from leaving the country. Technically, that was a death penalty offense. However, Sakuma still had defenders in the Tokugawa government, and Yoshida's own domain of Choshu thought highly of the young kid. Remember, Yoshida was a teacher at the domain school, so a good number of samurai and even the daimyo of the domain himself had attended Yoshida's lectures and liked the kid. He was passionate, he was smart, and he was captivatingly intense. Besides, we can't really go around executing some of the only people we've got who understand this crazy new western technology, can we? So instead, the two men were split up and sent back home, where they were kept under house arrest. Now here, the two started to grow apart a little bit. The younger Yoshida Shoin eventually opened his own school back in his home domain of Choshu, where he ran a sort of private school for samurai youth of particular talent. There he taught a mixed Western and Confucian curriculum. Students had to study Western rifle and artillery drills, but they also continued to read the Confucian classics and study the major texts of Japanese history. 
showing remained firmly committed to the idea of Eastern ethics and Western science. He believed that, as important as Western technology clearly would be to Japan's future, the wholesale abandonment of the Confucian past would be a disaster that would undercut the entire social fabric of Japan. His preference for Western technology, though, put him beyond the pale for some in his domain. When some of his students started to march around town in imitation Western military uniforms and to perform rifle drills, they were jeered and mocked and in some cases beaten in the streets by samurai who despised them for abandoning tradition. Over time, Yoshida's teachings began to take on some other ideas as well. In particular, if you'll remember back to episode 2 of this series, we talked a bit about Mito learning and the Mito view of history, these historians from the domain of Mito emphasizing the importance of the emperor in Japanese history. Shoin read a lot of these works and went through a hugely complex intellectual journey that I'm going to simplify down to a single idea. Shoin became convinced that the ills of Japan resulted from the removal of power from the emperor, that the emperor's authority was, and ought to be, the pinnacle of the Japanese political pyramid. However, what he envisioned was not a modern imperial state it would be far more accurate to describe it as a different kind of feudal system, with the emperor taking on the role of shogun and leading the domains personally rather than delegating the job to someone else. This idea eventually spurred Yoshida to action. For reasons we're going to talk about next time, he eventually decided that the Tokugawa government as it existed was intolerable and attempted to organize the assassination of a key Bakufu figure as the pretext for a general campaign of terror against the regime. His target was the Shoshidai, the ambassador of the shogun to the imperial court in Kyoto. The assassination, however, was horribly botched. The Bakufu caught wind of it well in advance and ordered Yoshida arrested and shipped to Edo. There would be no recourse this time. The daimyo of Choshu, Mori Takachika, refused to step in to help this time, and Yoshida was executed via beheading in 1859. Some of his students were, as a courtesy, permitted to collect his head and bury it. The elder Sakuma Shozan, meanwhile, never took this turn towards radicalism that his younger student had. Sakuma remained firmly committed to the idea of a government led by the shogun, and became an avid supporter of a power-sharing deal between the imperial court and the Tokugawa shoguns. Eventually, Sakuma was rehabilitated for his open defiance of the law, and even became a representative of the Bakufu in its attempts to work with and communicate with the imperial court. Why that was necessary is something we'll get into next time. Shozan also advocated for the removal of all restrictions on trade and travel with the West, in belief that it would bolster the Western science half of Eastern ethics and Western science. However, he too did not live to see the Meiji Restoration. In 1864, a zealous samurai who, like Yoshida Shoin, hated the shogunate for its perceived anti-imperial stance, and hated Sakuma in particular for his prone open nation policies, jumped Sakuma on the streets of Kyoto and stabbed him to death. Sakuma's killer was one Kawakami Gensai, 
And if you've ever heard of the series Rurouni Kenshin, he, Kawakami, not Sakuma, is the basis for the character of Himura Kenshin. Unfortunately for all you fanboys and fangirls out there, he's also not somebody we'll be spending really any time on, because honestly, he's not that important. So why did we just spend an episode on two men who had not lived to see the fall of the Tokugawa, let alone influence things afterwards? Well, two reasons. First, the men themselves may not have made it to the final showdown with the Tokugawa, but many of their students did. Katsukaishu, that very serious and ambitious son of a drunken, lazy father, is going to play a big part in two more parts of our story down the line, without spoiling too much of what's coming, if you've ever visited a part of Tokyo with buildings older than 1868, you have him to thank for it not being burned down, shot to pieces, or otherwise being destroyed. Yoshida Shoin's students, meanwhile, are going to be incredibly important. One of the key leaders of Choshu's army in the coming years, Takasuki Shinsaku, was a student of Yoshida's. So too were two men we've spent a lot of time hearing about on the show before. Yamagata Aritomo, the man who would eventually be the influence on the fledgling Imperial Japanese army, and Ito Hirabumi, the Bismarck of the East and author of the Meiji Constitution. All of these men will be making a lot of appearances later on in the series. Second, I think it's important to note the nature of the ideology espoused by both men. Sakuma Shozan and Yoshida Shoin were both fairly radical men for their day. Yoshida obviously more so than Sakuma, but neither one of them talked about going anywhere near as far as the actual Meiji government ended up going. Yoshida was the more radical of the two by a substantial degree, and the farthest he was willing to go was essentially folding the role of Shogun into that of Emperor. Neither man was willing to abandon the Confucian ideas which underpinned their entire worldview. Both believed that, fundamentally, Eastern ethics and Japanese social structure, as they existed in 1850, were mostly compatible with Western science, technology, and weaponry. This is important to emphasize for two reasons. First, Yoshida Shoin was pretty far out there on the radical side of politics compared to most of his contemporaries. Yet even this anti-Tokugawa firebrand could not conceive of a system where not only were there no more shoguns, but the samurai as a class no longer existed. Even though Yoshida himself did take non-samurai students, for Yoshida, the samurai class served just too important of a social role to get rid of. They were examples for everybody to follow, and without them, society just wouldn't work. I want to emphasize this point because I think it's important to drive home the idea that the ultimate endpoint of the Meiji Restoration, where we're going to end up, was utterly inconceivable to even the most radical thinkers of the 1850s. There's a term used in the study of politics, the Overton Window. In addition to being, and I only found this out when I tried to discover the origins of the term on Google, the title of an actual novel written by Glenn Beck, the Overton Window is a term coined by Joseph Overton at the time the president of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, to describe the range of ideas considered acceptable or practical in public discourse. In other words, the Overton window is the range of ideas that are considered politically feasible in a given society. 
At this point in our story, the Overton window remains firmly centered on traditional Japanese Confucian-inspired ideas. Even those advocating for the overthrow of the Tokugawa, few as they are at this point, could not conceive of a structure without somebody in a role like that of the Shogun. They simply didn't want the Tokugawa family in that spot anymore. What we're going to see in coming episodes is a dramatic shift in the Overton window, to the point where the formerly radical ideas of Yoshida Shoin are going to look extremely conservative by comparison. In addition, it's worth discussing the ideas of Yoshida and Sakuma, because their vision of Eastern ethics and Western science pretty closely mirrors that of reformers in other parts of Asia. In China and Korea as well, the goal of most existing government reformers was to find a way to incorporate Western scientific ideas with pre-existing Confucian philosophical worldviews. This approach, however, failed rather spectacularly, and that failure is one of the key parts of the Meiji Restoration. You see, simply put, knowledge can't be divided cleanly into philosophy or science or anything like that. Western science comes with its own history and its attached set of values in the form of rationalism, positivism, skeptical inquiry, all of that. Or, to put it another way, if you have somebody study the ideas of the West, then sure, yeah, they'll probably read some technical manuals on how to assemble a rifle or form an infantry square, but they'll also read the Social Contract, or the Second Treaties on Government, or the Declaration of Independence. You can't cleanly separate the political ideals of the Western Enlightenment from the scientific ones. And once a student is exposed to both, they're going to start doing that most typically annoying and student-esque thing, asking questions. And of course, in this specific context, all of those questions are going to be loaded by the background of the foreign crisis. Inevitably, some of these students are going to start wondering, are our philosophy and political ideals really that much better than those of the West? Is the only source of Western strength really their technology? Or is there something flawed about the traditional approach to our philosophy or to our politics? Questions like these, skewed though they were by the aura of danger surrounding the whole foreign crisis, are going to spell the end of Eastern ethics and Western science, and open up the door to a radical reimagining of life in Japan, as we'll see in weeks to come. Next time, however, we're going to hop back onto the narrative and talk about the tremendous debates inspired by the American insistence on an even more far-reaching treaty opening more of the country. This debate is going to get extremely bitter, and it's going to be the one that crosses a fateful line in the sand. Eventually, one side of the discussion is going to decide to appeal to a new source to support their argument and drag a new player into contemporary politics the Imperial Court in Kyoto. I say next time rather than next week, because for the next two weeks I will be taking my PhD qualifying exams, and I won't have time to record the podcast. So, there will be no new episodes next week or the week after that, but I'll be back in action and ready to go on October 31st. So, until that time comes, thank you very much for listening, Special thanks this week to Lucas Denberg and Skip Klauber for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, 
check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you in three weeks' time.